Blog Talk Radio.
All right, welcome to On Blast with Vita Star. I'm your host, Vita Star, here on Black Free Thinkers Radio. Um, I hope you guys are excited about tonight. I am, and I have a few guests who are also, I'm sure, equally as excited. Last show, we discussed black feminism, what it means, what is it, is it a necessity, and a whole bunch of other things. We just talked about black fem- feminism in so many ways, but tonight, I've invited other women of color to join us on the show as we discuss women of color in the feminist movement, the need for women of color to have their own spaces, issues that affect women of color that are not covered in mainstream feminism, and whether or not women of color feminism is even separate from the mainstream movement. We'll talk about issues that women of color face and how they differ from what white women face in the U.S. and the different campaigns and efforts in other communities that are taking place in ways maybe listeners can get involved. So we'll talk about all that and more. I'm going to come back with the guests in a few minutes, but I figured uh, it's also a good time for me to showcase, you know, some hip-hop, some more music. Um, nothing, I'm going to do something old school. I think you guys will dig something old school. You guys might have forgot about this. This was actually one of my favorite songs when I was a kid by one of my favorite rappers, Kuma Tifa, and uh, it's featuring Money Love. The song is called Ladies First. I had to do a throwback. It is wicked. Those that don't know how to be pros get evicted. A woman can bear you, break you, take you. Now it's time to rhyme. Can you relate to a sister's open up to make you holler and scream? Hey, yo, let me take it from here, queen. Excuse me, but I think I'm about to to get into precisely what I am about to do. I'm conversating to the folks who have no whatsoever clue. So listen very carefully as I break it down for you. Merrily, 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 merrily. Hi, hi, happy, overjoyed. Please, with all the beats and rhymes my sisters have employed. Look at you going down the sound totally a yes. Let me take the position. Ladies first, yeah? Yes. Woman is great to see. I know the lot of fellas out there will agree with me. Not for being one, but for being with one. Cause when it's time for loving, it's the woman that gets them drawn. Stepping, strutting, moving on, rhyming, cutting, and not forgetting. We are the ones to give birth to the new generation of prophets. Cause it's late. I break into a lyrical freestyle. Grab the mic, look at the crowd, and see smile. Cause they see a woman standing up on her own too. Sloppy, slouching, and something I won't do. Some think that we can't flow. Can't flow. Stereotypes, they got to go. To revert with what? With a little touch of late first. And the material that has no meaning, I wish to slay. Pay me every 
have adopted do we do in a respect due to the mother who's the root of it and next up is me the m-o-n-i-e-l-o-v-e and i'm first because i'm a l-a-z-i-e contact and in fact the style it gets harder cooling on the scene with my european partner laying down track after track waiting for the climax when i get there that's when i tax the next man or the next one man it doesn't make a difference keep the competition coming and i recite the chapter in verse the title of this recital is ladies first to On Blast with Vita Star on Black Freethinkers Radio. We will get into some news topics, but first, uh, let me introduce, um, I'm very excited about all of them, and uh, yeah, I, I'm actually really excited about all of them, because they're all such dope, amazing women. Um, first up, we have Raina Rhodes. She is the facilitator of, uh, well, one of the facilitators for People of Color Beyond Faith. Um, it's Twitter discussions and online panel, and uh, she's Super dope, amazing. She also writes. She also hosts a show sometimes. She's on hiatus right now, but she's going to get back to it because she's just entirely too, uh, she's entirely too amazing to uh, not know about. So uh, this here is uh, Raina Rose. Say hello. Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Welcome to On Blast with Vita Star. This isn't your first time on the show, right? This is like your second time or third time. This is like my second, probably the second official time. I probably called in before to disturb you. So. <laughs> <laughs> to disturb me or possibly make me think or challenge me. Raina, let me tell you something about Raina. Raina has no problem challenging anybody. Um, apparently she has a lot of background noise right now. But she's working on it. <laughs> that would be the dog. I apologize. He barks at everything. So, <laughs> but yeah, one thing about Raina, she has no problem challenging uh, any opinion ever, and she will let you know. And you know what? I, she will. And you know what? People like that, I appreciate it because sometimes, and I would be like, I don't want to say nothing. And then Raina just say the shit. I'm like, All right. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so, yeah, welcome, Raina. I'm glad you were able to join us. Thank you. I'm um, going to try to get the dog under control. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, help me out. Help me out over here. Um, <laughs> also, tonight we have Eva Reyes. I was going to call her by her maiden name, only because I've known her maiden name, like, way too many years. <laughs> <laughs> and it still messes me up. But, uh, you know, Eva Reyes, she's South L.A. Latina feminist, currently working with South Los Angeles youth on gang intervention and facilitating female gender groups uh, throughout L.A. County. So uh, welcome to the show, Eva. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm excited you can do the show. I'm, I'm, I love all of you guys. So, yes, I'm super excited. <laughs> I feel like this is just going to be, like, one of our conversations when we're just chilling at the house. So... <laughs> 
You know, and the fact, another thing about you guys should know about Eva, Eva's been a community organizer since she was like, how old were you, 14? I was 14, yeah. <laughs> 14. About the same age I started. We were both youth, or, we were both community organizers at a very young age, community activists, uh, school activists. I mean, she was on it. So, yeah, I, you guys need to know how dope Eva is. And But you know what? Lastly, and definitely not least, We'll be. Uh, we're also here with uh, award-winning director Tani Ikeda, who creates narratives, documentaries, music videos, and commercial films. She is also the co-founder and executive director of Immediate Justice, a summer workshop and community outreach program for girls devoted to revolutionizing sex education through filmmaking. Tani tours the country, speaking at universities and national conferences, and has launched film production programs on the Quinault Reservation in Washington and a media justice camp for girls in Kampala, Uganda. Oh, before I forget, she's also one of my best friends in the whole world. Welcome, Tanya. <laughs> thank you for having me on the show. No, thank you for being on the show. That's, like, I, I thought I can just brag about all of you guys because all of you guys are <laughs> so fucking dope and so fucking amazing that um, it's, honestly, Thank you. it's an honor to be able to have you guys on the show all at the same time. So I'm really excited about all of your perspectives and, you know, the various viewpoints that you guys have. And, yeah, so welcome all of you. Thank you so much. And we're going to go ahead and get right into the um, news. So, you know, I don't want to make you guys wait too long to let you guys, you know, often wait for our hot headlines here on Bond Blast. And I never disappoint. We've got a few for you before we get to the main topic. By the way, before I forget, because I usually forget to say these things, the chat room is now open. I forgot to open it earlier, so if you're just now logging in and you don't see the chat room, just refresh. The chat room is a good way to, if you don't want to call in, you can also um, look at the chat, you know, type in the chat room and ask your question or, you know, make your comment. Also, sometimes we post links to what we're talking about in the chat room. So, you know, if you want to be in the chat room, feel free to um, refresh your page and join the chat. Also, I believe um, Black Free Thinkers Radio is on Twitter. At least I was told this. And the, the hashtag is going to be OnBlastBSP. Um, hopefully, MC Brooks is on that because he definitely hit the episode when he was going to. <laughs> um, yeah, so check out. Yeah, he's, he's doing it. I see it now. So, yeah, join us. On Twitter, the hashtag is OnBlastBFT, and uh, we'll be responding to the Twitter position as well. So there we go. Make sure I and said that. Me to start, I just have to say, you have an amazing voice for radio. We usually just hang out in person in your kitchen, but I, I love being on your show and listening to you. You have the perfect voice for this. Oh, she really shit. does. That's not lying. <laughs> Y'all can't be making me. It's, it's like it's like barely 15 minutes into the show, and I'm already blushing at it. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, let me calm down. Thank you, uh, you guys. Thank you, Tommy. Uh, <laughs> compliments throw me off. Okay? We can talk about, about that. That's a whole other show. That's a whole other show. She's uh, a star in her age. Um, <laughs> let's go ahead and Let's go ahead and get to the news, the hot news topic mm-hmm. on blast. The first story, a nine-year-old boy from North Carolina was bullied. He was punched, pushed, and called names for a My Little Pony lunch sack to school. The school has responded by telling the boy, Grayson Bruce, to leave the sack at home, calling it a, quote, trigger for bullying. 
Grayson says, my, my Little Pony is his favorite cartoon. In a statement, the school says that Grayson's bag created a, a, literally, this is what they said, quote, created a disruption in the classroom. The school said they were looking into, looking into, the, contact of the, into the conduct of the bullies, but have, to date, taken no public action. Um, wow. I need to get, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, would, I need to get you guys' response on this. Um, let's start off with Eva. Let's start off with Eva. Um, what this story? What was your first reaction? We're talking about a kid who was actually bullied. He was a victim, but the school is telling him he caused it. He is basically it's his fault. What was your response to that? Uh, my res- my initial response was that it was utter bullshit. Uh, I think initially I figured, why can't the parents of this of the youth be talked to? It only takes five minutes to talk to them and explain that this child's feelings are being hurt or to stop, or, you know, we can definitely do something to create a culture of non-bullying. Instead, we're almost making it acceptable by telling the kid who is being bullied to just basically stop being you. Don't, you know, bring yourself, you know, just conform to what this kid is. And, and I don't think that's right. I think, you know, he should have that freedom of, of expression, and we should protect his rights to express himself instead of just trying to appease the bully and making him happy. Mm-hmm. Now, you're someone who you've worked with, I'm sure, youth who maybe have identified or had been labeled or identified um, as a bully. Yes, what, definitely. What in, you, what, what in your experience would have been the school's best response to this situation? I believe the school's best response would have been to call in both of their parents or have both kids sit down and see really what's going on. Um, I know sometimes it can be a little bit intimidating for the other youth, but I found when it comes from the bully, the bully doesn't, doesn't usually see the depth of the problem and doesn't understand the perspective of how it's really hurting him, or at least the gravity of, or, you know, the parents could really sue the school, which they are doing now, and they're suing the district. So it's, it's really, uh, I think the school should have really sat down with both parents and with, with the kids and have done something so that everyone would have been happy and not just appeasing the bully and their family. Because it's just setting up a standard. It's just really just setting a standard. Like, you know, we're, oh, you know, and there's a problem. We're just going to let it slide and find new rules, you know. That's interesting that you said to not have a conversation and your first reaction wasn't, you know, suspension and expulsion. And, you know, oh, no. I, noticed that was, <laughs> I noticed that wasn't your reaction. And, and that's very interesting because the first thing most people would say, well, those kids should have been, Tarred and feathered <laughs> and pushed out oh, the door. Um, whereas you're saying, doesn't... you know, this should be a discussion, it should be a space of understanding. Sometimes um, people who are, uh, you know, the youth that are identified or labeled as the bully, they just don't understand the pain that they've caused. And that's interesting. Yeah. That's a very interesting. Um, I want to go to Tani now. Tani, what, when you heard, when you read the story or heard about the story, or maybe you just heard of it and talking about it, what is your first reaction? Well, you know, it's so funny is I um, was just playing this game, Cards Against Humanity, and it was the feminist version. So I just learned this new word called bronies. Apparently, uh, this young man is in good company, and there's a a large group of, I guess, bros who support My Little Ponies. So that was my first thought that actually there's a whole lot of guys out there who love My Little Ponies. 
that so you know he's a good company. Um, secondly, I think what happens, especially with our youth, uh-huh. is that at a very early age, there's a lot of gender policing. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we're taught that girls are supposed to wear pink, boys are supposed to wear blue. There's a whole lot of gender assignment that happens, and I think even adults, and it sounds like the adults in this situation really didn't respond well um, to what happens with the bullying at school, but there's this inherent fear that if our children don't learn their place at an early age, they're going to suffer the consequences of stepping outside of gender norms. Um, So, you know, you see all of this community policing, both from adults and also in, in many ways from the other kids who are saying, oh, you know, you're a boy, you're not supposed to wear a My Little Pony backpack. And what's funny is I'm looking at the picture of the backpack, and it's blue. I thought blue was supposed to be the the color that was acceptable. <laughs> I'm like, it's just, so it's I just mean, all the flying pony rainbow stuff. <laughs> but I I feel what you're saying. It's it's a. I mean, it's really interesting because you're pointing out that this is a way to try to force this child to uh to basically be, a, like you said, conform to gender norms. And I, I, one of the reasons I wanted to make sure we talk about it on the show is because I was looking at the ways in which patriarchy and building in a patriarchal society also puts pressure on males as well, that they have to fit into this certain mold or idea of what masculine is. Um, I want to get Raina's input on this. What do you think about that? And also, you know, what do you think about, about adults trying to force this child to conform to these gender norms? Um, Well, for one, I think one of the things that we have to, you know, that has to be, you know, stated up front is that, you know, part of what U.S. education is about is socialization. You know, that's pretty much stated up front. You know, they're socializing these kids for, you know, the quote-unquote world outside, but oftentimes it's just a – you know, a place where all of these, you know, these biases and, you know, you know these uh, patterns of discrimination get, you know, basically um, instilled very early. And I think that um, particularly for, gen- for kids that are not gender conforming um, and minority and other minority children, I, th- I think that there is a lack of empathy, you know what I mean, oftentimes from a lot of the instructors and, you know, administrators in a lot of these schools. Um, I, I don't know what the race of the, so, of the bully was, but um, I'm going to go picture, ahead and hazard. Would, to, yeah. well, go from ahead. the picture, he, I would assume he was a Caucasian male. Yeah, and that's and that's pretty much what I was assuming as well. Um, and and that's another that's something else that can be thrown into this. You know, we have this you know school to prison pipeline, and you know our minority kids are being you know funneled through that. Um, whereas oftentimes Caucasian kids are not you know given you know the harshest punishment. They're usually given the slap on the wrist. So that was one of the things that came to mind. But another mm. thing that came to mind is the um, the issue, I don't know if you guys have heard of a documentary called Valentine Road. I haven't. Okay, well, it was it's basically about this uh, non-gender conforming um, Latino child 
um, who was shot in school. And um, unfortunately, the reaction of the school and, the, and, and several of the teachers and the administrators was essentially that if he had not, uh, had he con- conformed to his gender and possibly not expressed um, a crush that he had on a, you know, a heterosexual, you know, teenage guy, that he would not have been shot. And so there's been very little sympathy uh, on uh, on behalf of the administrators and the teachers. They essentially blamed him for his death. Um, and they and this is essentially what they've what they've done with this kid. Like if you don't bring in the little the My Little Pony, you know, lunchbox, then you won't get punched and kicked. You know, and that's just that's just really ridiculous. It's a, it's, it's a ridiculous line of logic, and it's something that we should not be instilling in kids. We should be telling them to be responsible for their own actions and their own emotions, and that means not hitting someone, you know, when they're not mm-hmm. doing something that you don't like. You, you know, know, it's – yeah, oh, I, I totally hear what you're saying. And I, and I thought it was a really interesting comparison to that film. Yeah. Now I need to see that film. Um, but, you know, my reaction to this was – it's kind of funny because I had a similar reaction uh, to Eva as far as how the school handled it, as well as looking at how, um, like I said before, like how patriarchy and a patriarchal society affects males as well and, and the idea of masculinity. Um, but right. going back to my experience working with schools and working with youth and running, I, you know, running youth programs and program, doing program management, um, I can say the, the way the school handles this was completely fucked completely fucked. Mm-hmm. It's just like, essentially, they were victim blaming. It's your fault mm-hmm. that you were, it's your fault that you were punched. It's your fault you were pushed and called names. So therefore, you have to, you are going to be punished. You do not bring something you like, even though it's not against the rules, even though this doesn't violate any of our codes, but because, you know, you're going to get attacked for it and we're not going to protect you, just don't bring it. So they were victim blaming. And regardless of you as an administrator or a teacher, how you feel about gender norms, your idea that people should conform to these, you know, ridiculous ideas, no matter your opinion on that as a school administrator or a teacher or whatever, faculty of any sort, there's supposed to be a system in place to protect students from that. There's supposed to be a system right. in place that student gets bullied, if a student is pushed, if a student is attacked, this is the way we handle it. And I guarantee you it's none of their protocol to blame the victim. I guarantee there's no school mm-hmm. going to say, yes, you know, where their school policy says if you're attacked and pushed, we have a right to make sure that, you're, you know, you don't get to do this And I don't understand that. That's mm-hmm. kind of my administrative standpoint. But also, you know, looking at from the gender conforming standpoint, it's a lot of – it's very interesting that there's a lot of pressure put on children to fit into these boxes, right? I mean, in the commercials, the toys, the toys themselves, in the cartoons, the idea that we're supposed to conform to these gender norms and gender ideas, ideas and ideals, or societal ideals. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of my reaction to this. Um, right. And I, I want to give up. Yeah, I, I want to get up to the next story. Um, and I think. Yeah, story. Oh, here we go. Um, this one kind of addresses gender wage gap and how it starts. And I, 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 I'm going to get into the story, but I'm going to ask you guys how you guys view it. Um, there's a lot of noise in the background. I'm not sure who it is, but there's a lot of noise. 
Um, so, at any rate, uh, this story is basically about gender wage gap. Very few, now in this field this is going to sound like what, babysitters? Yeah, so very few babysitters are men, yet those who do this work still charge more for their services. The Price Economics blog scraped information from babysitters online profiles to see their age, gender, hourly rate, and other information. It found that just 2.9% of babysitters are men. So while the median price for a babysitter is 14.50 an hour, which is also what the median woman charges, men bid that price up, charging 15 an hour. The site notes, even in an industry like babysitting where men are likely discriminated against, they still try to charge more for their service. Now, before you, and, and before you claim this supply, and this is from the article, and before you claim that it's supply and demand, since there are fewer men in the industry, they may charge a premium for those who prefer their services. Those not likely, but that's not likely the story here. Men are rarely sought after for those services. Price Economics notes that babysitting site CityCity.com only shows women by default. To get a man in your search results, you have to change advanced settings. So at any rate, um, the babe, oh, let me get to this point. The babysitting gender disparity is just one of the gaps that start early on. Young girls are also given more chores, are given more Sorry. chores but less in allowance than boys. One study found that girls are asked to do two more, two more hours of chores a week than boys, while another study found that three-quarters of girls do chores compared to 65% of boys, but they get paid less. Um, so this story goes on and on, and it kind of gives you more examples of girls starting off. And it points it out in babysitting. It points it out in um, chores. My question is, why do you think that is? Now, anybody, now I've been a part of these sites, CitterCityCare.com, all because I'm a, you know, I'm a professional nanny in addition to doing radio and being a radio producer. Um, I'm also nanny for extreme time. And I've been on these sites. You can charge whatever you want. I charge out the ass. So I was going to look at my, my profile. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I do. I charge, I charge way more than fourteen fifty an hour. <laughs> way more. As you but, should. Um, <laughs> but, I, but it's, it's interesting that, honestly, you as a woman, you can set your own wages. You can sit up, you can say, I'm going to charge $10 an hour or I'm going to charge $45 an hour, whatever you decide. Why do you think it is that women, and, this, and I've heard this before in, in fields before also, that in jobs, women also, we, t- we don't negotiate pay, but we'll, we'll take whatever the job says. Jobs says they're going to pay 35000 a year. We just say okay, whereas men typically, you know, will negotiate and challenge that offer. Why do you think women at such an early age, and babysitting, even in chores, even if they're doing more work, that they're not asking for more money? Um, I want to start this time with Raina. So you're asking why we don't ask for more money? Um, I mean, I'm just saying that in these differences, we're we're seeing that women or girls are not are not charging more for their services, or 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 are they asking for more money in uh, when they're applying for jobs? Uh, well, I mean, there's there's I mean, for one, it's because we're um, basically socialized not to be as assertive as men are. Um, you know, when, when we're, you know, when we're, when we assert ourselves, you know, we're, you know, classified as being bitchy or, you know, um, bossy and no, I am not for the banning bossy, but, you know, that's just the fact of the, that is just, 
yeah, I'm not for banning bossy. Um, just with that up front. But um, but yeah, no, it's it's just the way that we're socialized. We don't want you know people to be upset with us or or, ma- or mad at us because we think um, we should be offered more. Um, but I mean, essentially, in terms of the the wage gap, it's just about you know the way that society values men and women and the you know the types of work that they're supposed to do you know, based on what genitals they were born with. Um, you know, when, you know, woman's work is not, is, is in the private sphere. It's not public. You don't see people, you know, grinding away, generally speaking. It happens behind closed doors. And so generally speaking, you know, patriarchy thinks that that is not as valuable as um, um, you know, going out to a nine-to-five, I guess. So. Um, I, I want, yeah, thank you. And I actually, uh, I, I feel you on that, that we're basically socialized to not ask. We're, so, we're socialized to not be assertive and, you know, and, and I hear you on the bossy thing. I was going to ask you guys about that a little bit later. We talked about mainstream feminism. But, <laughs> but um, Connie, what do you think about what Raina just said? She's saying that, we're, you know, women, we're, a lot of times we're socialized not to be assertive. I, I agree. Girls are very socialized to please others. And so when you're socialized in a way that you're not supposed to ask for what you want or for what you need, it's very hard to, um, to negotiate your own terms. Um, I think also, you know, a lot of girls are told, you know, you can follow your dreams, you can become what you want, um, but then when they, once they actually hit the job market, there's this very obvious glass ceiling um, because a lot of people – are looking for leadership that doesn't look like them, point blank. Um, or the leadership has more masculine qualities that um, a lot of women don't have in the way that they will organize or facilitate a conversation. Um, there's different traits that, um, you know, traditional leadership doesn't necessarily um, look for in a lot of female leadership. So. I think I think there are multiple issues at play here. Ella, I want to I want to get your thoughts on this. Let's let's go ahead and jump jump right on in. Sure. Um, well, when I heard your comment, I heard a couple things. Uh, I well, I thought a couple things. Um, one, like as a Latina, I am. It's almost like it's what you're just supposed to do. We're taught even when we go to someone's house, when you're done eating, you wash all the dishes because you should be grateful that they cooked for you. And um, it's things like that where it's almost embedded in us. And I know even for myself, it has become almost like, I'm not sure, it has become almost a culture of pleasing. And um, even now being a feminist, I feel that, you know, it, it doesn't have to be that way. And I do things for my husband because I love him and because I appreciate him. And it's those things that it's, it's nice that I do them, but I don't have to. But I feel when little girls, when they're not asking for enough, it's almost because, well, when we're taught in a culture where you should be grateful and you should wash these dishes, it's almost like, well, I'm not, I should be grateful for what I get. And it's, um, it's kind of, it was a little bit, um, it's not so eye-opening to me. Um, when I heard it, I, I immediately imagined a little girl cleaning and saying, no, I, I, it's what I'm supposed to do. And it's not what she's supposed to do. It's that we, we put little girls in these gender roles I mean, even myself growing up, my parents always told us, um, Eva, you clean inside and Hugo, you clean outside, and that's just how it was. We never questioned it. So I think, um, you know, I think little girls have been placed into this role, 
And I think, you know, we're not taught to be aggressive or to speak up about it. We're taught, you know, you take what you get and be happy for it. That's a very right. in good so many point. Ways, I, I just wanted to add to that. In so many ways, we're taught to be well-liked. And so if you're trying to assert yourself and you know that that belief is going to be unpopular or you're going to come under fire or pressure for that negotiation, you can't continue to be well-liked. So if that's the main right. objective, you're not going to be able to be well-liked and also this powerful woman who's negotiating and, and asserting herself for her pay. Yeah. Yeah, and I, that's that's dead on. And I actually um, identify a lot with what Eva was saying because I, I had the same situation. I was the only female in my house. And um, I was with my dad and my brother. And my brother's chores, you know, was, was like taking out the trash. My chores were anything related to the kitchen, anything. <laughs> Both <of> my <laughs> and, um, and I think that, you know, we and I didn't say anything because I was always taught that that was my role. And, he, and my father would even say to me, oh, I want you to be a good wife. You have to know how to do this. And I hated doing it. I hated everything about it. But, you know, he, I was told, well, you have to learn how to do this. You know, and I didn't fight against it because he was my dad. And that's and to throw a cultural element on it, when you're black, you don't argue with your parents. <laughs> that's one thing that we're definitely taught in the black community is your parents are the authority, period, and that's just what it is. And I think also, you know, so you have that cultural element of follow authority, which is not uncommon in a lot of black households. It, it, it kind of, I think it's sort of, in my opinion, it has trickled down to this idea that we, are, we obey orders and we, t- we, we don't negotiate. Um, and we and, and not being in a, a position of power in this country, and I think that's one element of it. Then there's the other element of being a female and being told that these are your roles, and you take what you, you 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 be pleasant and you take what you're given, and you you be an acceptable and agreeable woman. Don't be combative. That's the other thing. I always get told that I'm combative and aggressive whenever I challenge something, if I address something, and I don't let shit you know just fall to the side. I'm told I'm being aggressive. <laughs> and that, that kind of ties into the, the bossy thing. I think that's one of the dumbest campaigns. And like I said, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, <laughs> I mean, that whole thing. But I do want to get to the next story. Um, then we're going to take a quick break and get into our main topic. Um, British, okay, a British HIV-infected woman's startling ignorance about her illness has stunned viewers of a talk show. Um, this clip has gone viral, and I posted the link in the chat room. So Rachel Dilly, 48, says she contracted HIV at age 40 from a sexual fling and admitted during an appearance on the UK's This Morning talk show that she, quote, didn't know anything about HIV and thought you got it in Africa. I didn't know a white person had ever got it. This is what she says. I didn't know a white person had ever got it. I knew nothing about (sighs) HIV or AIDS. And everything I read on the Internet terrified me. When I told my children, they were devastated. My daughter was so affected, she couldn't speak. And my younger son said, are you going to die? I couldn't have felt more ashamed because I had no one to blame but myself. So this ties into the misinformation. First of all, she's lying. <laughs> I don't care what she says. First of all, she's lying. Because in this, in, this, in this day and age, there, it is impossible not to know that you know white what? people, straight good. people, and good. other categories. I'm not, no, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying I'm not it. Not <laughs> Look, Raina, hold on. I don't know what they think <laughs> in Britain, okay? 
I don't even know what part of Prince the lady from. She might be from some farm somewhere. You go, you know, we don't know. I, I don't know from this article. Maybe she, I don't look. Look, I want to give her the benefit of the doubt. Maybe she really didn't know. I don't understand how somebody can get on TV and say, I didn't know, and I thought you got it in Africa. Like, who would, who would label to lie and sound that stupid? Like, who would say, hmm, I know what I'll do. I'll get on TV and sound dumb as fuck. <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> I mean, I granted there are reality shows. Look at what you paid. I, I'm sure she's not getting paid to get on this morning talk show. And if she got paid, I'm sure it wasn't that much. But she's getting attention. So, you know, some people are attention whores, <laughs> you know? So, so you know. Eva, do you think she's lying, or do you think do you think she purposely got on? You know, I, I think she got it shit. and she wanted some attention. I'm not sure just how ignorant she was. I mean, it's true. I mean, at this point, everybody knows about AIDS, and I don't want to say everybody to be so general, but I mean, come on. I, I, well, okay, let's put it like yeah, this: If she has a smartphone, she knows better. She cannot have a smartphone. <laughs> I, you, I'm not, not sure. know that. No, okay, you can't. Okay. But I, uh, but I, I just feel like you know what? It, it may just be for the attention-seeking part. I just think it was more so a little bit like hateful, not hateful. I don't know just how ignorant you'd be. Like, oh, I thought you only got that from Africa. Like, how offensive is that? And that's my other thing. If she's gonna lie, right? If she's gonna lie, I'm throw this to Tani. So Tani hasn't weighed in yet. You know, Raina and Eva said that she's lying. She got to know. It's 2014. Who the fuck don't know? You know, mm-hmm. you got, I don't know Britain. I don't know their educational system. You know, I don't know if they, how they learn. I don't know if they have commercials on, you know, every other channel about, I don't know. I also got billboards in the hood, you know, telling you go get tested. I don't know if she got all that. So I, I don't know. But I will ask this. If she is lying. Why does she have to connect it to Africa? Like, what was the point of that? And I want to throw that to Because she's lying. You know, that's to throw in there. Hmm. Not only am I going to lie, let me throw Africa in there. Right. <laughs> well, I think a lot of times people, for their own safety, will otherize something like HIV so that they feel like they've got this false sense of protection. Oh, you know, people like me don't get HIV or AIDS. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and you'd be surprised the kind of ignorance that still exists even with the Internet. I mean, a lot of people won't seek out information even though there's tons of it online. Um, I've, I've gotten a, a lot of questions as a comprehensive sex ed um, educator, you know, anywhere from, oh, I thought you could get HIV from kissing, um, you know, to it's well known that you can just get it from mosquitoes. Yeah, but um, I, I'm sorry. I, I agree with you that there's some there's a lot of misinformation out there, even on the internet. However, in 2014, I find it very difficult to believe that she's never heard of a single person with so who was white Africa? that had HIV. Why she why she why she bring up Africa? Let's talk about that then. Why she bring up Africa? Okay. Um, like she said, it's it's about other rising. You know, I mean, you know, these these. Diseases are something that those backwards people over there are supposed to get. You know what I mean? According, you know, this is just, this is, you know, you know, just how 
white supremacy exists, you know, it's, it's not supposed to happen here. Like, okay, for example, I come from Columbia, you guys might have heard about the shooting that happened at Columbia Mall. You know, a lot of people in this community were very appalled that something would have, like that would have happened here. But I'm not, I wasn't surprised. You know what I mean? Because I don't live in a world that says that because I'm surrounded by white people that I'm safe. You know what I mean? I just don't have that oh, yeah, belief. I, I feel you on that. I feel you on that. But I feel you on that. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, if anything, this pretty much highlights a, an element of racism, either on her part or on society's part. And only connecting mm-hmm. AIDS to Africa. Because I will say this: whenever you think of HIV and AIDS, the first place you think about is Africa. That's the that's, those are the images you're constantly shown. That's what you're told. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is an African disease. This is only plaguing Africa and Africans. Um, you don't. Some people really just may not see it as something that they really have to worry about. Like they may they may see it as something that's far away. You know, like yeah, it could happen, but that's like getting struck by lightning. You know what I mean? Because they've never mm-hmm. seen it, and they don't. And so there are. And now I have friends who have who have contracted it. So I I've seen it, so I know what it looks like. But not everyone has that experience. So I'm just I'm just saying, like you know, there's a possibility she didn't know. Either, but if, even then, it's still either that society is racist in the sense that it's connecting it to Africa, and that's the only those are the most of the images you're seeing. You see, in fact. It's one of the few images you see of Africa outside of people starving all the time. <laughs> you know, it's like we don't really have a clear view of Africa or at, or at all. Um, but at the same right. time, even even if she's lying, she still connected it to Africa. So well, somebody's racist in this scenario. Yeah. Of course. I think it speaks to the, the power of media stereotypes and how if you feel so far removed from something like, for example, there's a lot of people in middle America that have never met an Asian person, and so their only perception of what Asian Americans and Asian people are like are through the television or through, um, you know, being online and how if all of those representations are stereotypes, then that's, that's what they're going to bring when they meet you. That's, that's where all of their information is coming from. So I think it also goes to show the kind of stigmatization that is educating people um, directly through media. Um, MC Brooks is in the chat room telling me I know she's lying. Look, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm not going to say either way. She's you know, lying. There's no possible way. I mean, you and, know, you've got you've got a lot of you know British celebrities, you know, who have adv- advocated on behalf of you know HIV, you know, research organizations and things like that. You've got Elton John. You've got you know, Princess Diana, she didn't always do her HIV work in Africa. You know what I mean? So, like, I just don't no, understand how someone can really, you know, lie through their teeth and say they've never heard of a single white person who Great. has HIV. Listen, honey, listen, sweetie, don't you love when people do that to you as a woman? Sweetie, honey, sugar pie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had to get the attention. I had to, I had to throw that in there. Um. You know, you might be right. I'm just saying, I don't know. I'm just saying somebody racist. That's all I'm saying. That's all. And if you know Vita, <laughs> I agree. If you do know Vita, Vita go, Vita go highlight the racism. That's what I'm saying. Like, you don't got to worry yes. about it. Agreed. 
last show um, by female MCs, and I'm kind of pissing myself that I didn't think of this one. Uh, one of my favorite MCs, she's from the Bay Area. Um, she has, I don't know if she has any new music out, uh, but I do know she's put out a lot of music. Um, she's featuring a lot of people's work. Um, Mystic, she had an album years ago, uh, Cuts for Luck and Scars for Freedom, one of my favorite albums, and I wanted to play her song, Girlfriend, Sister, Girl, and we'll get into our main topic right after this. Oh, I know I don't know you or nothing, but can you just bump my shit right now? Bump <laughs>
All right, we are back. With that, you know, we are here, Black Free Thinkers Radio. You're listening to On Blast with Vita Star. I am here with Raina Rose from People of Color Beyond Belief. Tommy Ikeda. Faith, where I get Beyond Belief from? <laughs> and you probably got it from Foundation Beyond Belief. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, titles and things to remember Beyond around Belief this community. I think beyond belief is just like uh, like a normal phrase. Like you know, it's like a phrase you often hear. Beyond belief. Yeah. In fact, you know what's funny? One of my favorite songs when I back when I was a Christian was Petra. Beyond belief. Don't don't judge me if you don't know who Petra is. Please don't Google it. Um, <laughs> anyway, I also like DC Talk. Jesus freak. But again, don't Google it. Um, oh wow. Jesus, wow. Okay. Hey, I was a very strong woman, very, very strong. Uh, also, we have Tani Ikeda, who is an award-winning director and executive director and co-founder of Immediate Justice. Welcome back, Tani. Hey, good to be back. Okay. <laughs> I mean, hello. Uh, also, we have, also, we have Eva, who is uh I was about to say youth worker, but it's not youth worker. Oh, I'm a program coordinator. She works with South Los Angeles youth on gang intervention and facilitating female gender groups throughout LA County. And we're going to get into that. Um, uh, I do want to talk about the work that you guys do in your respective uh, organization. So, I, you know, we're going to talk about uh, people of color beyond faith. We're going to talk a little bit about this stuff. And we're going to talk a little bit about the gender group, the female gender group, hitting uh, Eva. It um, looks like we have another caller on the line who I'm sure would like to join us. Caller 562. Okay, they hung up. Well, it was great having you, Caller 562. Uh, my bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, and maybe maybe I didn't want to talk. Maybe I just wanted to listen, and I kind of, like, fucked their whole shit up. Um, sorry about that. Call back in. Don't. Um, by the way, if you guys do want to call and participate, participate in the conversation, you can call 310-982-4273. If you are on the page and you don't see the chat room, you need to refresh. The chat room should pop up. Also, we are on Twitter, on blast, hashtag on blast BFP. Uh, shout out to MC Brooks for making that happen. Um, okay, let's get let's go ahead and get into this discussion. Um, I want to know, first off, as soon as my uh, list of questions come back, <laughs> I don't know what happened on my computer. <laughs> that's fucked up. Like, as soon as I get ready to ask a question, my computer decides to, like, fuck me over. So, uh, what do you do? Uh, <laughs> but you know what I'll do? I do want to talk a little bit um, just about how you guys identify. Um, how long have you identified? First of all, I believe all of you guys identify as feminists, but I'm going to know how long you've identified yourself as a feminist since you were a child, for a year. You know, I didn't, and there's no judgment on any of it. I just want to know how long have you personally identified yourself as a feminist. And I'd like to talk, uh, let's get Tani's input on that first. Um, let me think. I mean, I think a lot of this has to do with my mom, who, you know, it's not like she necessarily went to a bunch of rallies, um, and she was a stay-at-home mom. But in so many ways, um, 
I think she was always a model of strength, and she identified as a feminist. So I feel like in many ways um, it it wasn't, it never felt like a question, do I or don't I define myself as a feminist. I mean, I think, you know, later on what I started to realize is there are so many, when you say you're a feminist, there are so many different perceptions and also different feminist circles, right? So if we're talking about mainstream feminism, in many ways that's just code for white feminism. And oftentimes um, women of color feminists and our agendas and issues get pushed to the margins of mainstream feminism. Um, so, you know, in doing my work with immediate justice, um, oftentimes I'm, I've got my foot kind of in both worlds where, you know, we're all queer women of color organizers, but in order to get funding or access or just to even promote the work that we do, we're running in all of these circles that are predominantly um, white feminists. So it's it's this interesting dichotomy that I, I've thought a lot about. And I'm I'm excited to talk about today. So you identify as a feminist, but specifically a woman of color feminist that has to operate in a white dominated feminist uh, sphere. Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, I think there's kind of two things. One, a lot of community organizing, at least um, in my experience, that is um, a lot of the leadership has been uh, men of color. And then if it's sort of more in alignment with certain feminist um, ideals, a lot of that tends to be run by uh, white women, white women who identify as feminists. Um, so I think a lot of times women of color who are holding all of these identities, both as a as a woman, as a person of color, um, regardless of what you know how you identify in terms of your sexuality, these are all identities that fit inside of you. So you're seeing things from a different vantage point that's less polarizing. I wanna. Um touch on that a little bit more but a little bit later because I want to get Eva and Raina's responses um, to the question. You, you touched on a few things about um, these spaces, uh, you know, if they're men of color or uh, white women that, you know, women of color find themselves in uh, this sort of outer position. It's almost, it's very similar to Shirley Chisholm if you ever uh, studied her um, campaign, how things went for her when she was running for uh, office, for presidential office. Um we can get into that a little bit later, but I want to get Raina. Um, how long have you identified yourself as a feminist? And and like Tani, do you identify yourself as a woman of color feminist or black feminist, uh, separate from the main white feminist? Lady? Yeah, definitely identify as a black feminist um, or woman of color feminist. And uh, I am. Um, I, I guess I have called myself a feminist probably since college, but I probably was. A feminist long before that I just I just like you know we talked about this before just like the title atheist I resisted the title feminist because I had a lot of problem I found a lot of things very problematic you mm-hmm. know about the label um, you know because of what you've seen in mainstream feminism you know and and when I was coming up you know it was like you know I was born in I was born in 84 you know so you know, when I really started to become aware of sort of the world around me, I was it was the 90s, 
and it was like the early 90s. So like you saw a lot of uh, a lot of feminism very much concerned with you know hip hop and the influence of hip hop on culture. And there was a it seemed like there you know the focus of feminism at that time was something that I really could not get with because it seemed to make like black men the enemy. You know what I mean? at that particular moment in time. And though I had some of the same, you know, some similar issues that I, you know, raised, you know, about some of the music that I was hearing, I did not necessarily take it the same way that the mainstream feminists, you know. Um, They were ready to write off hip-hop altogether. You know, I was not. So I I felt differently, and so I kind of resisted that, and I had to get into college and, you know, do some reading on my own to figure out, that, you know, there were other schools of thought. And that's when I started to call myself a black feminist. So So you initially identified, first you had an issue with the label altogether, a feminist. Then you identified as Mm -hmm. feminist. Then you branched off into specifically identifying yourself as a black feminist. Yes. Okay. Eva, what about you? When did you um, first identify as a feminist? And do you identify yourself as a feminist, a woman of color feminist, or, you know, Latina feminist? Do you have another, um, what's the, what is it called, another adjective to put in front of your <laughs> your feminist label? <laughs> um, and at what point did you uh, develop that? So first, how long do you identify as a feminist, and then I, do you identify as a woman of color feminist specifically? Uh, well, I definitely identify as a feminist and have been. Um, I think I've been calling myself a feminist for the past four or five years. But even when I was a kid, um, I remember, um, as I stated earlier, I would have to clean inside and out, and my brother would have to clean outside. And I never took that. I never wanted to accept that, and I spoke up about it in my home. And I saw my mother um, speak up to my dad and say, well, you know what, she can have chores outside too, you know, or she can come in and sleep one, one day a week, then that's fine, you can wash the dishes. And my, my dad arguing and my mom saying, well, you know what, this is, these are modern times now. Women can do whatever they want. And seeing my mom speak up for, for not just myself but for even women as a whole um, in my home growing up was definitely, um, it definitely influenced my thoughts today and what, what kind of role I should accept as a woman and that I should speak up about it. Um, I've definitely, I definitely identify um, myself as a Latina activist and have I think I identified myself that way ever since I, I initially called myself a feminist. I lived in a feminist um, when I initially called myself a feminist and when I actually put that name to it because there are issues that we, we face differently. There is a little bit, I don't know, it's just slightly different. A lot of us as women face the same things, but even as, as separate cultures, we face, we face different uh, uh, walls or hurdles that we have to jump. So. Um, I definitely identify as a Latina feminist and, and do because of the example that my mother gave me. Uh-huh. And I I don't know, I'm, I'm going to throw this out and I, and I know you've identified yourself as Afro-Latina. Do you identify... Yes, I do. <laughs> you got excited about it. <laughs> I'm so proud. <laughs> yes, I'm a, <laughs> You are so hilarious. She's like, yes, exactly. Um... <laughs> And, I, and knowing you, and you, you know, I've known you for years, and we've been friends for years, and um, you probably identified as Afro-Latina. Is there is there a space for specifically Afro-Latinas in um, women of yes. color feminists? Do you, do you see that space? Oh, and do you- 
Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I actually, I don't see it here in the U.S., but I would say more in our home countries. And my family is from Honduras in Guatemala. And when even Latina, Afro-Latina women are treated differently and hold different positions um, in Honduras than Afro-Latina or than regular Latina women would. Um, like the Latina woman is allowed, the light-skinned Latina woman is allowed to work at the bank, but the dark-skinned Latina woman is allowed to sell fruit outside. There's a very big difference in even just how we see ourselves as a culture, and there's definitely racism within it. And so, and within our our our, um, our feminism, I think it should be distinguished. And um, here in the U.S., just because I know here in L.A., I don't really know too many other Afro-Latinas, but I think in our own countries, there should and can be a movement for it. That's interesting, and I, and I definitely want to talk a little bit about uh, women of color feminism internationally. And I know Tani's traveled a lot, so uh, we can talk a little bit about that as well. Um, and I, I, I want to go ahead and answer the question myself. Um, I identified as a feminist um, probably somewhere around college, like the end of college, maybe my junior, senior, maybe my senior year, really. Um, and even then I wasn't vocal about saying I am a feminist. And um, mostly because I didn't really understand what feminism was. I did see it as a very female-oriented thing, so I had a hard time identifying it at all. Um, and also there were all these negative connotations, but I also, you know, on some level took in, like, you know, the propaganda and things like that. So um, I, I, it took me a while. And, you know, and like I said, even when I identified as one, I wasn't vocal about it. Like I would never talk about it, especially around black men, because I felt like that completely shut down. So I never really talked about it. But I do remember. I do specifically remember the point when I stopped denying it. And um, Tommy, when we, me and Tommy and I, I've known Tommy since college, and um, we were a part of an organization. She was one of the founders, I believe, of Women with um, Creative Collective for Change. And it was basically an art collective of women activists and artists, <laughs> and the combination of basically that, and mostly women of color. But you know, we it was all women. And um, I forgot what the email exchange was about. I, it was an email exchange about something, and in my email, I said I myself didn't identify as feminist. And then shout out to my friend Sonia, who responded to uh, <laughs> so Sonia out in Davis, California, doing her science thing. Shout out to her. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> her science thing. She's probably like, what? <laughs> but yeah. Um, so shout out to Sonia. But she sent this email reply, and she said. Um, but I don't even know who the quote is from. This is, she said she gave me a, a definition of feminism that I could roll with. And she said, feminism is recognizing that women are a people. And it, it just, it took me a second mm. to get it. I read it like 20 times, and I didn't get it for a while. And so it bugged me, and I kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And then I realized what, what the point was, that we are a people. We matter. We have voices. We are equal to, you know, we're, we are a people, and we deserve a voice, and we have a voice. And I just never thought about it like that. It just took me a while to get it. So shout out to her when I really started to embrace that idea. Mm-hmm. Now, black, um, the black, it's funny because I identify as a black feminist until probably fairly recently, once I really saw what, because my introduction to feminism was Women's Creative Collective, which was very diverse. In fact, it was a lot of women of color. So I didn't really have a full view of white, what white femi- what, what feminism was in the mainstream, really, because all my perspectives came from K 
community activists of color, especially a lot of black and Latino women that I grew up with and also uh, women from this collective who were from everywhere. And um, so I didn't, and, and when some white feminist shit would pop off, women of color would be, we'd be on that shit. Like, wait a minute, hold the fuck up, <laughs> you know. Like <laughs> that privilege shit, you know. So I, that's the space I was used to. And then I, when I got out of college, I started participating in some of local organization events and panel discussions and, you know, uh, all these different types of things. And I started to get a little annoyed. I'd be like, and these, and these, and these, these were like mainstream organizations in L.A., white, female-run for the most part. And I'd go and I'd find myself very annoyed and very irritated. Because I was, I was never doing that. Because I was always around women of color feminists. So I didn't even get this shit. What the fuck is this shit? <laughs> and I, I'm going to a panel discussion, and they're talking about body image, and um, uh, this, the, I, I'm sure a different. I shared one story last uh, last show, but I'm sure different women. But you have this uh, discussion on body image, and this guy, you know, he's so he was an executive at Mattel, the people who make Barbie. But anyway, he was a former executive there, and he's talking about, you know, um, ways to get girls to love themselves or some shit. And he says, why don't we have T-shirts that promote these positive sayings for girls about body image or whatever? And he's like, and we should sell it as Fred Siegel or Siegel, whatever the name is. Fred Siegel, that's the name of the place. Fred Siegel is some bougie-ass store and only in white <laughs> He ain't say, let's sell this plot meat. I mean, you know, he didn't say right. that He didn't say so at a store that's actually in the hood. Even if he had said Macy's, there's a Macy's at the Crenshaw Mall. No, he said specifically these boutique stores only in white neighborhoods, and it's a very high price store. So who does that eliminate from this conversation already? And it, it wasn't even just that. It was a discussion on plastic surgery. It was discussed. It, 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 it was a discussion on white on this white Barbie doll given to. His, by the way, this is a white man talking about his adopted black daughter and his nanny gave, because it's funny, they're rich. His nanny gives their black daughter a, a white Barbie doll. He's freaking out. And I'm like, okay, but her mama's white, so I don't understand what your issue is. Um, and it, it's just it's conversations all the time. And the other thing was they would never have their events in the hood. It would never be below the 10 freeway. Or if it was, it was like right on the and I made suggestions for black-owned and Latino-owned businesses in South L.A. They never had them there. The closest they got was a Mexican restaurant by the beach, and that's in Venice, not even in black people. So that was around the time I started to realize that, you know, there's a difference here. There's a stark difference, and there's a separation. And I, I want to get from you. I want to kind of hear from you guys. What are some experiences that you've had? You don't have, have to go into too much detail. Like, I didn't name name or anything, so I don't want you to do that and get yourself in any trouble. But are there any points that you realize, like, wait a minute, this this isn't going to work? Like, I see I see what you're doing here. I'm going to start off with Raina. Are there any points where you had to kind of, like, see some shit and separate from it? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, um, you know, it's, it, it, for example, um, well, something just came up on Twitter the other day, and I, I thought this was a really good example. Um, someone had, um, had commented on the fact that a lot of, um, you know, white feminists had been praising Lena Dunham for, you know, being so, um, you know, for being so, um, you know, 
I, I guess, bringing for bringing forth the issue of being, you know, loving your body and, you know, it, you know, embracing, you know, your size and your shape or whatever. But like, you know, that doesn't happen for like Gabourey Sibide. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Who 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 is you know who is very comfortable in who she is, you know what I mean, or other or other types of um, or other women, you know what I mean, and other body types, you know, and um, you know um, some people uh, some other people have brought up the fact you know that um, very recently there was a um, a woman who um, I guess the the butt selfie chick I guess you know what I mean was being brought out and trotted out and talked about how like how awesome her backside was. And, you know, and these are things that, you know, oftentimes women of color are, you know, they're made fun of for. You know, they're they're harassed for. They're, you know, they're degraded for, you know, for having, you know, curves or big butts or being, you know, overweight, you know, all of these sorts of things. So I think sometimes in um, in white feminist circles, like, they, they focus on these on these issues and they – they forget all of the ways that you know black women are are, are black women and, and, and brown women and other women are, are I guess otherized. You know what I mean? Um, you know by by these sorts of issues. You know, like people were talking about Lululemon and all these other sorts of issues. And then I'll talk about like you know just the fact that you know like the Dove campaigns and all these other campaigns they focus very on a very narrow spectrum. Of beauty, right? And it's always this very sort of um, Eurocentric, you know, white, very thin, you know, type of, you know, beauty. And there's all sorts of beauty, you know, out there. So you know, I just, I just, that's Dove? one instance. You know what's mm-hmm. thing about Dove? It, they're so full of shit. Um, also, I mean, real shit. Cause I think it's a Unilever product, and Unilever also makes skin lightening cream that they mostly market in areas that have high African and Southeast Asian populations, you know, like specifically so much in the U.S., mostly like in the U.K. and in Africa and Southeast Asia. And um, just the same company that's telling us, you know, love your bodies. We're going to encourage women to, you know, love themselves and all this shit. These are the same people that are marketing skin lightening cream. And if you haven't seen some of these ads, it's called, um, what's the name of this stuff? It bothered me so much when I saw these commercials. What's I think of the name? I'll let you guys know. But it's an actual product. Um, it's called Fair and Lovely. Fair and Lovely. Yeah. Google, put, mm-hmm. put Fair and Lovely in YouTube. And you're going to see the kind of shit that they advertise. So fuck Dove and all these motherfuckers. Let me, let me call that because I must have gone on my rant. But, <laughs> <laughs> that was about to start. That really was. But, yeah. You know, so I totally feel where you're coming from, Raina. Uh, Tani, um, I want you to go ahead and if you want to jump in on that. Um, mm-hmm. I want to know. Well, and, and, let me ask mm-hmm. go, ahead. go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, go, sorry, ahead. go ahead. Oh, okay. Well, um, to, to answer your question about, you know, personal experiences that we've had, um, the other week I was representing immediate justice at a UN women's conference in Santa Monica, even though it was supposed to be about, you know, girls in Los Angeles. Um, that's a side note, though. Um, but in my mind, I told myself this might be a good networking opportunity. But as as I, you know, looked around at the event, I cringed when I saw how heavily the event was being moderated by police enforcement. 
Um, there were LAPD on the panels, um, and and then the Why? next six hours. Well, I'll, I'll tell you. Um, a big topic that came up was how to make Los Angeles safer for girls, and the strategy that everybody was most excited about was higher surveillance, increased police to ensure that Los Angeles is safe. You know, I quote, you know, Los Angeles is one of the most dangerous cities in America. Um, You know, so there's this, this repetition of, you know, how do we make Los Angeles safer for our girls? And I kept wondering which girls I I wanted to know, Mm -hmm. you know, which safer for whom, um, you know, is it is it the women and girls who are being torn apart from their family members during immigration ice raids? Are they the, the trans girls being beaten for their gender expression and imprisoned for defending themselves? I mean, it was this very, I think, privileged, skewed uh, conversation about safety. And for me, it, it, it articulated in so many ways one of the the main issues that I see in mainstream feminism, uh, kind of one of the banner heads is this idea of ending violence against women and girls. Um, but unfortunately, you know, there's very little analysis around, um, you know, how, how those women and girls are, are quote unquote protected. Um, and so there's no analysis around the prison industrial complex. You know, so I mean, what was interesting but, to me is is the fall, the following week. So I mean, I was I was infuriated. It was it was a really frustrating thing to participate in. Um, but the following week, I attended the Transformative Justice and White Supremacist Violence Workshop in Los Angeles, led by Insight Women of Color Against Violence. Um, Patrice Cullors, who's the uh, founder and executive director of Dignity and Power Now. Um, which is an organization that's, you know, really looking at the way prison guards are treating um, folks who are incarcerated. Um, All of these really great movement organizers, women of color feminists, were there in Boyle Heights sharing our strategies around anti-violence work through transformative justice. Um, And one of the things that I felt like was so salient is Generation 5, outlined um, two core beliefs about transformative justice. And one of them, I'm, I'm just going to read it off, was the one, individual justice and collective liberation are equally important, mutually supportive, and fundamentally intertwined. So the achievement of one is impossible without the achievement of the other. And secondly, that state and systemic responses to violence, including the criminal legal system and child welfare agencies, not only fail to advance individual and collective justice, but also condone and perpetuate cycles of violence. Um, And for me, that is very much what is missing in the analysis happening in the mainstream feminist circles that are trying to chip away at similar questions regarding um, anti-violence but they're doing it in a way that's actually making our communities unsafe and unfree. Um, so, there's so, a couple of things. Um, before you go on, um, can you, can you uh, give a definition for transformative justice? Sure, sure. I mean, I feel like transformative justice really seeks to provide people who experience violence with 
immediate safety, um, long-term healing, and reparations while at the same time holding people who commit violence accountable within and by their communities. So it's, it's really removing the factor of involving, um, you know, the state and, and police and the criminal justice system. You know, another thing that you talked, you talked about the event and or the conference, and they were excited about this increased police safety. Um, there's two things mm-hmm. to that that bother me. One, basically, what you identified as complete dismissal of how people of color feel about police, you know, um, and their experiences with the police, especially the fucking LAPD. <laughs> you know, who was mm-hmm. like, yeah, no, but they're. I mean, literally known for their abuse of people of color and their abuse of power. Mm-hmm. Even other police departments be like, what the fuck is up with LAPD? <laughs> you know? So, so, you're t- so you're talking about these LAPD who's known for harassing and, you know, I think the only other one that's on, that people talk about as much is NYPD. And um, so you have that part of it. You know, like, obviously you don't give a fuck what people of color think because there ain't no way in hell – I'm a sort of thing, no conference might tell me increased police is supposed to make me feel safer because it doesn't. Um, mm-hmm. But the other part of that is it also doesn't sound like it makes much sense considering that women have been harassed by police. Mm-hmm. So I don't get that. In fact, there was a story I think we reported it was it last show where a woman was raped by officers. There was another one where a woman was assaulted. It was a black lady. She was assaulted by officers. And she recorded it, and they tried to uh, get her to – she recorded them trying to uh, basically force her to drop her charges against the police department, and she recorded it. And those kind of things actually happen. So I'm trying to figure out where, where the idea that police – increased police means safety for anybody. So that's, that's – I'm a little confused and troubled by that. It, it is very troubling. I mean, if you're attaching it to the movement to end violence against women, you know, I know so many people who would not hesitate to call 911 if, you know, they had been sexually assaulted, for example. And I right. think that response is so um, automatic for so many people with that, that type of privilege that a more nuanced relationship to, you know, well, I'm not going to call the police because I'm an illegal immigrant, or I'm not going to call the police because, you know, in so many situations. I'm not going to call the police because I'm a sex worker. Right, Mm -hmm. right. Um, I mean, I'm I'm thinking of uh, uh, Marissa Alexander right now who, um, you know, she's on trial right now. I think she's facing somewhere between – 20 to 30 years in prison um, for defending herself against her husband um, who, you know, I, I think he was, was involved in a lot of domestic history, abuse. Yeah, he had a history of domestic abuse. That was on file. Right, right. You know, and she did, um, you know, go into her uh, her basement and take out her gun and fire a couple warning shots but they weren't directed towards him, and, and this was, you know, this is the same argument that Zimmerman used, right, the stand-your-ground um, argument, and yet she was the one who was arrested, and she's the one who's on trial right now for facing 20 to 30 years, you know. So, I mean, there's, there's just some very 
stark differences in terms of our relationships to the police. Um, in right, terms and of law enforcement. Thinking about safety. Right. Just, I mean, just our experience with the criminal justice system at all is very different. I want to get to Eva. Um, Eva, when did you notice the difference between issues you faced as a Latina and issues addressed in mainstream feminism? Um, it's funny when when we say mainstream feminism because the, the minute I heard it, I, mean, I immediately thought of when I watched the news. And um, in on Univision and even in on Telemundo, there, there we have news channels, but even our um, who, for instance, on Primer Impacto, we have two um, female leads, but they're still overly sexualized. Um, it was hard for me almost to to watch the news when I felt like even women were being degraded, even though they were being put in positions of power. It was. It's not like if they dress down, they're not going to get watched. It was the fact that they, their clothes are still over, overly tight. There's a show, in fact, right now on Telemundo. It's like action news. And the woman wears overly short skirts. And I'm sure that's not within the dress code, or if it is, you know, it's a bit much to be wearing on TV. And I think it, I think it really speaks to the fact that women, especially Latina women, are almost overly sexualized, even on the news. It's not just on, um, on commercials where we see Sofia Vergara wearing a skin-tight dress, dancing salsa, and advertising Pepsi, which is incredibly racist. And, uh, you know, it's, it becomes, you know, this message that we're feeding to our to our um, to our Latina women that you know we oh you can be over you to be successful you know you still have to be extra sexy to get attention otherwise someone's going to watch and I think I kind of started to separate it even when I felt when I saw that you know darker Latinas were not on the news and I didn't really see anyone that looked like me and even if there was someone that was dark she always had her hair straight and I knew that was not the natural texture of her hair and so I even. Um, I think once I started to notice the beauty standards that we held, even our newscasters to, these are the women you know, who deliver our news. They're, they're, they're role models and still overly sexualized Latina women. See, and that's an interesting point that you bring up, too, about body image and how each of us, you know, being Asian American, being Latina, Latina American, being African American or black, however you identify, you know, if you look at how we are or are not represented in um, any images on television. And I hate to bring up magazines. I feel like that's so cliche and like an easy target. But, you know, I have to point, I mean, but at the same time, they're a great example of it, probably one of the best examples of it, um, of how white female privilege works in those spaces and how our images and our bodies, I mean, keep in mind, they're only on, it's, it's like our bodies and our features are only on okay if they're features that are shared by a white woman, for example. So Anthony and Jolie Lips are just like the greatest people on earth. Black people or Kim Kardashian's like, backside. Right, or Kim Kardashian's ass. Or, you know, if a white woman has slanted eyes, all of a sudden she's beautiful. But whereas, you know, as an Asian woman, if you're in the media, a lot of them, and I won't say a lot, but some and maybe many have their eyes widened to be more, uh, to give it more of a Euro look. And what's interesting is that these white female feminists will talk about how go is bad, they want us all to be skinny, but I don't always end up conversation about how our features are used or not used or represented in their own media. Even in shit that I've seen, like they're like, yay, girl power, and it's like all white women. <laughs> You're just like, mm-hmm. wait, <laughs> <laughs> so right. I want to talk a little bit about that. How have you guys seen 
And thank you so much for bringing this up, Eva. How have you guys seen uh, our images as women of color um, represented in the media in a way that made you go, wait, and you didn't see white feminists jumping all up and down about it. Like, what are some things maybe you've seen or things that you feel like should be addressed? Or maybe, you know, and we can get into this a little bit later because I know Raina knows what I'm talking about as far as you're fetishizing us. Um, I want to kind of get your perspective on that. And we can start off with, I don't know if Eva's ready to go, if Eva wants to jump in on that. Um, on my um, opinion on how Latinas are addressed in the media or seen in the media? Yeah. Um, Mainstream. I, oh, I think we haven't done a good enough job of uh, of addressing it. I think, um, you know, we've kind of, there, there's been an awareness to the Latina over sexualization, but we're not, um, we're still, I think, at a point where it's become a norm. You know, if we're still watching television and we're seeing, even if it's not, you know, Latino news, and it's just, let's say, a magazine, you know, we're still perpetuating the standard of beauty. And, you know, it's being, being skinny is not the same as being healthy because you can be big and be healthy and that's fine. And I think that's the part where it gets me where it's like not every curvaceous woman is, you know, it looks like this. Not everyone who's skinny looks like this. And it's, um, you know, I, I just, um, for me, it's just, it's almost appalling. It's, it's not the message that I'd like to send to our young women. It makes it okay. It makes people think that, you know, you have to be sexy to get to the top, which you don't have to. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that Latina women are fetishized? Can you talk about the over-sexualization, the hyper-sexualization of Latina image? Do you feel like the Latina image is also fetishized by white America? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think you know, it's funny because when um, it's, it's, it's like people, they hear you're a Latina, oh, let me see those Latin curves. Or do you have an accent? <laughs> let me hear you speak Spanish. And, you know, it, it's, that, that, that in itself, it's, you know, well, why do you want to hear me speak Spanish? Do you think it's going to be really sexy if I say something? It's just going to be in Spanish. And, you know, I think it's these, these curves, these women, even like this flowy hair, you know, not, not all of us have flowy, straight hair. And I think, you know, it's just become, it's, it's not acceptable. I think we've, we've put, um, a lot of people have put Latinas in a box, and, and it's not acceptable. It's time that we break out and show that we don't all fit into that box. Um, I'm going to go to Tani, and I'm going to speak specifically about um, Asian and Asian-American images in mainstream or white media. Um, well, a couple of things. Do you feel that when discussions about body image and magazines and movies and things like that in the mainstream feminist world, when those conversations get discussed, do you feel that it is inclusive of uh, Asian-American women representation or Asian representation in these mainstream images? And do, how do you feel about the current images or past images of Asian women and Asian-American women in the media? I mean, it's it's complicated. One, I think the the beauty ideal is a white woman with Caucasian characteristics. And so I know personally when I was growing up, um, something that a lot of girls did is they would glue their eyelids so that their eyes were bigger, and it was like this rite of passage. And, and you know, uh, I, I remember Asian American being in high school. Yeah, yeah, I remember yeah. being in high school. And, um, well, Asian, um, you know, so both Asian American and, and Asian women, it's a pretty common practice. Um, I, you know, I, I remember in college a roommate of mine 
she had gotten, who was a Korean-American, she had gotten double eyelid surgery at 15, and, and her mother had really said, you know, this is for your own health, so when you're old, you'll still be able to see, so your eyelids don't droop, you know. So she, she explained it to her as a medical necessity um, and not to alter her eyes to make them look more Caucasian. So, you know, wow. I remember at an, at an early age just always really, really wanting my eyes to look bigger, and I thought that I could train them by gluing them and taping them the way the other girls I knew in high school did. So, so I think I went through this whole period where, you know, I, I didn't say that it was in order to look white. I just said this is just more beautiful. Um, and it took me a lot of – I felt like I had to do a lot of reading in order to honor the kind of beauty that I carried that didn't necessarily need to be altered. So, I mean, I really feel like reading, um, you know, radical women of color like um, Bell Hooks, um, reading uh, visionaries like R.G. Lord, Gloria Anzaldúa, um, the Kambahi River Collective, um, you know, it wasn't just about beauty, but it was about the whole system being skewed. And I think that gave me a kind of power that I didn't have in walking down the street and really owning my body and reclaiming what that beauty um, could look like. Do you think that um, when these discussions about body image come up in the mainstream, um, mm-hmm. and like I said, the most I see is about whether or not people are fat or skinny or, you know, that's pretty mm-hmm. much it. <laughs> That's pretty much what mm-hmm. people address in mainstream feminism when it comes to body image and beauty ideals. Do you think, do, have you seen anything other than that that is inclusive of Asian American and Asian women? As far as I'm body sorry, as, as far as body image? In the, well, yeah, like, I mean, there's, I think there's, that those discussions come up, because let me tell you right now, I never heard of the eyelid thing until you. Never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, the only, so a lot of times, I guess, you know, uh, like a lot of white-dominated things, things that affect specifically white people, they tend to think is general, you know. Um, and I, I have, a, I can give an example of that later, but I, I want to kind of get your thoughts on whether or not you see anything different maybe in the media. That, hey, yeah, there are some times when they address body image and how it affects Asian and Asian-American girls. Mm-hmm. Maybe you, have you seen anything different? Yeah. Or would you say what I said? Well, I'm 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 trying to make sure that I understand your question and that I'm answering your question. But so as as I understand what you're saying, um, I think that because a lot of girls growing up all have the same white skinny um, beauty ideal. That's that's what we try to become. Um, and uh-huh. so, you know, there's there's a lot of the same things like dyeing your hair lighter and getting streaks in your hair, um, having bigger eyes, having uh, for your blue eye contact, so your your eyes are literally lighter. Um, I know in Asia, it's very popular in all of the magazines. There's skin lightening creams um, and nose and double eyelid surgery advertised in the back, um, and so. I mean, I think there's that aspect of it. The other thing that's interesting is 
I think I also went through a phase where I could see that being an Asian woman was seen as exotic. And Uh so, you know, your tan skin, your long um, dark hair, um, that was a (laughs) thing for white guys. (laughs) <laughs> That's kind of a whole other story, sort of the, the fetishization of Asian women um, that I think you can start to play into or that I think, you know, a certain type of man is particularly attracted to. I mean, recently I read somewhere that for online dating polls, uh, Asian women apparently beat out white women and are more desirable, which I mean, my first response is, suck it, white women, (laughs) after all of these years. But, um, you know, (laughs) but I mean, it's it's interesting because, you know, who who are these guys? A lot of them are these kind of creepy white dudes who have this, this fetish of Asian women and perceive them as being these docile, hyper uh, feminine housewives that are, are, you know, so subservient and and will do everything for you without question. And I think that's a stereotype that comes up a whole lot. I don't know if that answers your question, though. (laughs) No, no, you know what? You did, and you actually brought up some other ones, but I want to get to Raina and get her viewpoint um, as an African-American woman or as a black woman. How would you say um, the media has addressed body image from a perspective, well, how is it that me has addressed body image in regards to black women? Uh, okay, so um, in regards to black women, I think the media, um, I mean, okay, so we have, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I, I just want to make sure. And you're trying to figure I, out like, it, how exactly to say it. <laughs> yeah, like where do I want to start? You know what I mean is the, is the question. Um, so, okay, so because of, you know, racism and, you know, white supremacist, patri- white supremacist patriarchy, basically, you know, black women aren't generally regarded as being particularly feminine. So, you know, we're typically seen as being masculine or, um, you know, or outside of feminine norms from the jump. So we tend to be made fun of, you know, our beauty tends to be the joke, you know, within okay. media, um, and you know, and when we're not being, um, you know, seen as the joke, or we're not the butt of the joke, especially if you're overweight, um, mm-hmm. you know, you're being made to be hypersexual, you know, and our bodies are seen as mm-hmm. as being hypersexual, and um, and and so, I mean, that that's mm-hmm. like the the short answer, you know, that I can give you. You know, if I wait, I mean. If I went through my um my OKCupid okay messages back when I was on the dating site OKCupid, okay I could show mm-hmm. like, I could and I did this for another show for the Reality Is Real show. Shout out to Bruce Smith. Um, but uh, <laughs> I've gotten messages, you know, hey, I like black women. You guys are sexy. You guys are exotic. You guys, you guys are the best lovers. I'm serious. These are messages yeah. I got like random non-black men, um, mostly white, but a mix of uh, white men and um, Middle Eastern men. And they- well, I can tell you, I get the same thing occasionally. I, I can't tell you how many times I've opened up an, you know, okay, keep it, you know, inbox, and it's like, hey, brown sugar. <laughs> you, oh, know? Right. you know? You know? I did, like, like, we are these uh, hypersexual 
you know, sex fixings or something. And I and it's and funny because yeah. I know I like have a similar experience. Uh, so uh, Eva kind of touched on that, just hypersexualization. But there's also this part as a black woman where people think we're just these, I don't know, like, I don't want to say beasts in bed, but I don't know how to really say it. <laughs> like, we're like these yeah. ultra freaks and, you know, <laughs> who that's, that's, and so we become, that becomes our image for whatever reason. And I'm a, you can go ahead and finish every time. You had a lot you wanted to cover, so I'm going to go ahead and let you finish your point. Oh, I mean, I mean, yeah, I was just trying to be brief. I didn't want to, I didn't want to take up too much time, but, um, you know, cause I could go on and on about this. Um, but, um, Not, but yeah, I mean, sorry, go ahead. Did you, sorry, oh, someone going to say something? I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to oh, okay. wrap this at so, yeah, I was just saying I hear you, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly, I mean, we're seen as hypersexual and, you know, that, that has very deep roots. I mean, that goes. That goes to, you know, back to slavery. Um, you know, we have the, there's this sort of a dual uh, stereotype. On the one hand, you know, we're Jezebels and we, you know, we seduced, you know, the, our, our, our slave masters into having sex with right. us because why would they want us? We're so unattractive, right? But on the other we hand, have, we have were these. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's like, and, and, um, there's a really good book. It's talking. It's called Clinging to Mammy, and it really draws. Um, it really shows how the mammy stereotype and the Jezebel stereotype really reinforced one another. You know mm-hmm. that we were so we were so hideous and so unsightly. You know what I mean? That you know right. all we could really do was take care of the children, right? But on the other hand, we were, you know, lascivious. And so the only reason that there were these light-skinned, you know, bastard children running around is because we right. forced ourselves, essentially, onto right. white And men. let's not forget that those light-skinned bastard daughters, those images end up being the tragic mulatto image, right? Or being right. high, or they're, oh, they're acceptably pretty because they have white in them. And you know, but but at the same time, they're these sexual vixens, just like a you know a black woman who's you know not half white, you know. And uh, exactly, and I, that's my issues I had with like Lena Horne. Those kind of, I mean, don't get me wrong, I, you can't pick on um, actors and actresses from the past, but I feel like a lot of her images were that character, the light skinned uh, woman who's trying to you know the light skinned quote unquote homewrecker, even though I completely hate that term. Um, but that's the image that she's played in movies. In fact, Cabin in the Sky is like one of the movies I had to analyze when I was in college, and I was like, oh, my God, I can't even sit through this bullshit. <laughs> but that's a common yeah. image that today is still played out. Like, sometimes I even look at characters that Paula Patton has played, and I'm like, really? <laughs> you know, um, in 2000? I mean, can you really call what Paula Patton does acting, though? Like, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that she can do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're not allowed to, to call her an actress. I'm laughing. I'm laughing. It's true. Um, you're right. I, I don't know what we call what she does. But she's a very, uh, she seems nice, so I don't want to pick on her too bad. She seems like a nice person. Yeah. Oh, she seems like she's a nice person, but that doesn't mean that she can act. <laughs> I know, I know. You're absolutely. I, I can't stand her acting, and she always plays in really <laughs> bad movies. Um, yeah. But at any rate, 
Um, you know what? I want to wrap up because we're going to end in about 15 minutes. But I, I do want to touch on the work that you guys do, um, and I want to talk about things that you've done. I know uh, Tanya talked a little bit about her organization, Immediate Justice. I want to get a little bit more detail on that. But I really want to talk about, um, Raina, your work that you do with people uh, people of color beyond faith. Not beyond belief, because I know I've said that <laughs> people of color beyond faith. So what is it, and why is it important that uh, you identify with people of color beyond faith, as opposed to just saying being people beyond faith? Um, so, okay, so, um, as, as, you know, those of you that listen to this program know that, you know, pretty much all of our hosts are non-believers. So, um, you know, we are, you know, we're, you know, involved in the secular community to, you know, some degree or another. And unfortunately, within the secular community, there is a lot of, you know, white, affluent, you know, privilege and, you know, issues pertaining to people of color are ignored. Um, and, and in some cases, people of color are direct targets of, um, you know, of, of racism in the guise of, um, you know, secular rationality. You know, um, there's quite a few individuals who've attacked black Christians, for example, for being Uncle Tom's uh, or Uncle Tom house Negroes. Now, where a white person gets off thinking that they can label someone a race traitor, you know what I mean, is just, right. you know, it just blows my mind. But, um, you know, People of Color Beyond Faith is an organization that looks we're we're secular we're secular people and so we're not interested in, you know, trying to, you know, preach God to people. We want to figure out, you know, you know, secular courses of action. courses of action where we can work with, you know, progressive religious people, um, and other groups. Um, you know, for issues related to social justice. So we have a monthly webcast where we try to um, pair people, you know, from different, you know, areas of the community um, to kind of discuss some of these issues. So this, um, the upcoming webcast that we're doing is um, focused on how, um, you know, religion um, oppresses women in some ways. And, um, and so we'll talk about that. And, of course, you know, these discussions are not meant to just beat up on religion. You know, we want to talk about ways, in, you know, that we have, as people of color, have transformed religion into um, you know something pr- productive. You know, um, right. there's all sorts of like the civil rights you know ways that we've done that. The civil rights slavery. movement, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. The um, yeah. yeah. So black liberation theology. You know, you know women. You know women's theology. You know all that kind of stuff. So we this is what we do, and so we're interested in trying to try um, to, to forge alliances and, and you know do some work in these communities. I mean, we're we're living at a time where you know. Um, you know, systemic inequality is growing, you know, and, um, you know, these mainstream organizations don't really care about addressing systemic inequality, and we do, um, so that's what we do. And, and that's fantastic. The thing I love really is the way you guys do this, especially using utilizing social media and having these Twitter chats, and um, is, it, is it Google Plus or YouTube, you guys, is it Google Plus that you guys have these panel discussions, or on YouTube? You yeah, so we use... Yeah, we use Google Hangouts um, in order to, um, you know, record our webcasts, but we, um, you know, we put put them up on YouTube. So they're there for you to view on the People of Color Beyond Faith YouTube channel. 
at any time. And we have um, we have a conference coming up this summer, and we also have a conference going on in L.A. in October. So, um, you know, more information will be coming up for that. But, um, you know, next month we're going we're, – um, my me – uh, Sakibu, Dr. Sakibu Hutchinson um, and Kimberly Veal, you know, our fearless leader, we're going to be at um, my, my alma mater, um, Morgan State University, for the Philosophical Atheism and Communities of Color Conference. And um, they're really about, you know, kind of talking about, um, you know, sort of issues of commonality, you know what I mean, between, you know, religious uh, skeptics and, you know, the religious community and talking about how there could you know, we can work together to um you know, to move social justice forward, you know, in a positive direction. So Yeah. I think and I think that's fantastic. And I love the way that you guys have utilized social media, I love the way that you guys have connected to, you know, spaces like Morgan State University. Um so I I think that's and I also think it's great that you basically connected, you know, issues around uh sexism, issues around racism, issues around not I mean not only about being beyond faith, it's not only about atheism, it's not only about even religion. It's really a connection and talking about that intersection and making sure that people have that conversation and realize that space exists. So I think that's excellent the work yeah. that you guys do. Um so yeah. and also Super shout out to Kim. Um, and I want connecting that, you know, uh, as far as media and the use of social media, I know immediate justice, uh, you know, we worked really hard using social media to get us some funding. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so um, talk a little bit about immediate justice and uh, what it is and what are some ways that, um, what are some ways that you've even used uh, social media to your advantage to really advance your work? Well, Immediate Justice is an organization that teaches high school-age girls filmmaking and comprehensive sex ed, and over the course of eight weeks, they create their own sex ed videos for their peers. Um, so since the chapter in Los Angeles is very um, queer women of color centered, a lot of the content is about what's missing in your current sex ed, and there isn't a whole lot of queer sex ed. There isn't a lot of um, body positivity work um, that, that centers um, the bodies and stories of women of color. So those are some of the leanings and angles that a lot of the video content ends up um, forming. And in, in terms of social media, um, in our first few years, all of our grant came from soda companies like uh, Mountain Dew and the Pepsi Refresh um, Foundation. Um, and in order to get the money, we had to mobilize people to vote for us through Facebook and Twitter. So that was a very crazy thing to take on, but I think um, we were successful in those efforts because we were a younger organization and all of our friends were already active on Twitter and Facebook. Well, what are some ways that you use social media to advance your work itself? And I mean, not only, I mean, the funding part definitely is a big part of that because it's hard to really do your work without the funding. But what are some, because I know that you guys post, you know, post the things on YouTube, there's a website. What are some things, and I know that on the, you have a Facebook fan page, and, um, you know, you guys are constantly putting uh, material on there. What are some things, like, what is your strategy for that? Like, what are you trying to do? Why is that important that, they, that you utilize social media to advance their work, and how have you done well, one thing that's been sort of an exciting social experiment, uh, experiment for me is that um, we've started to do workshops with young people in Oakland, in Washington, D.C., 
um, we've run workshops uh, with young women in Kampala, Uganda, Beijing, China, and Dindigal, India. And one of the ways in which this conversation can continue to develop is online. Um, and so what was great, I remember um, when we screened the films from Los Angeles in Uganda, um, where you know currently it's illegal to be gay, a lot of the girls were really surprised that all the girls in LA were openly queer and talking about oh. queer sex ed. You know, and so I think that was at first like something that felt very dangerous um, when uh -huh. we originally seen those films, and then um, you know, and then those girls felt really excited to create their own films so that they could be watched in Los Angeles, um, and and those girls would get a chance to see what was important to the girls in Kampala. So I think social media, what's, what's great now, is the technology. Um, is a little bit more readily available than it has been in the past. And so it allows a lot of young people to be in conversation, whereas before it was a little bit, there's a little bit more of a divide in terms of having a dialogue. So I think film has been a really wonderful t tool for us to just get down to the basics of storytelling and to be able to, you know, it's kind of like sitting around a campfire and, and everybody telling their stories, but it's happening, you know, virally over the Internet, and it's a way in which we can still be really engaged and invested in each other's lives and the work that we're doing. Uh, thank you for explaining that, and that's excellent. And, and, you know, I've seen the work that you guys have done, and I've seen the film. And I think other films are still available on YouTube at all or on mm -hmm. your blog yeah. site. So where can people see the, these films? They're excellent. They're amazing. Where can people see these films? You can find them on our website at immediatejusticeproductions.org. Um, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook as well. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you. Uh, if, uh, we only have five minutes left. We're going to go probably do a little bit of overtime only because I want to make sure you guys get all your info out. And I want to make sure uh, everyone, you know, has a fair chance to do that. But Eva, I would like for you to explain um, what you do. You said you work for uh, South, you work with South Los Angeles Youth on gang intervention. For those of you guys who know what South Los Angeles is, that's South Central. Um, South Los Angeles. <laughs> 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 so people are like, what the fuck is South Los Angeles? It's everybody, so everybody else knows it's South Central. But um, so you work with South LA Youth on gang intervention, and uh, you said yeah. you facilitate so gender groups. What are favorite yeah. gender groups? And by the so way, live, just just really quickly, Eva, I'm really sorry. But for those of you guys who are listening live, we are going to cut off. Um, but you can uh, download the rest of the show if you, if you want to skip ahead to the two-hour mark because you want to get this last bit of information, uh, feel free to do that. But we're going to go off live in, in a few minutes. Um, but I do want to tell everybody, make sure that you check out uh, Black Free Thinkers Radio, all of our other shows. Just go to On Blast. Uh, not on blast, I'm sorry, blogtalkradio.com slash blackfreethinkers, and you'll see what other shows are coming up. There's another one, there's one coming up this Sunday, um, I believe, and it's 10 a.m. Pacific time. I don't know what it is everybody else's time. But um, check our site, and, and, and you'll see all of that. Also, you know, follow me on Twitter and Facebook, Be The Star, um, and all that good stuff. So I'm sorry about that. I want to make sure everybody knows you can download the show. Um, and we're only going to be off for, like, maybe five more minutes after that, only because I want to make sure we get everybody's info in. Um, Eva, you can go ahead and answer that question now. What, is, uh, yeah. what, what are these um, facilitate? 
So uh, the gender group, it's called uh, it's, uh, Gender in the Community Contract, and they are, it's an 8- to 12-week program, and it's all about female empowerment. It's a female-only group done by female-only facilitators, and we've set it up this way because we understand that females face different challenges than boys do. And not just that, but even within our groups, the girls open up a lot more freely when they feel more comfortable even within themselves because they know girls understand girl problems. And if we have a boy in the room, they won't feel so comfortable speaking. And we do this uh, for middle and high school youth. There are 8 to 12 week, week sessions. And for the most part, it's about empowering youth through decision-making skills. It's about it's really about awareness. It's about um, we, we teach mentorship. Uh, we teach about the different types of, types of abuse the gray area of race, sex ed. We have mother-daughter activities and field trips. We also talk are these about girls, assertiveness. Are, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Are these girls girls who are in gangs or in danger of becoming involved in gangs yes. or both? They have been identified by a school-based probation officer as either at-risk or high-risk, high-need. The difference is an at-risk youth has maybe one barrier. For instance, let's say they live in a bad neighborhood. And a, um, a high-risk youth has a minimum of three barriers, be that they live in a single-family home, they live in a bad neighborhood, and maybe their family is intergenerational gangs, or um, the youth is transgender. And for the most part, most of our youth in South L.A. have three or more barriers. And so we've, they've been identified, um, these girls in particular have been identified as either high-risk, high-need, or at-risk, and they're the ones we feel need it the most, who need to know that it's okay to be assertive. It's okay to know how to say no. And it's okay to find a mentor. It's about normalizing um, what it is to be a woman and to be empowered and to find that in yourself. So what are some things that you, uh, what are some questions or discussions that you guys have had? We have had assertiveness is definitely, um, it's all the time we talk about assertiveness and we talk about um, how it's important for you to know how to say no, but also to do so effectively because there's a difference between assertive and aggressive. And when we're aggressive, sometimes we can hurt people's feelings and we may not come off very clearly. But when we're assertive, we're clear, but we also stand our ground. And there's power in that. We teach about the gray area of rape. A lot of our young women don't understand. They know what rape is and what rape is not, but they don't always know that it's, you don't always have to say no. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be verbalized. Sometimes your body mm-hmm. says no. When you're turning away, that means no, and the other person knows that. And for them to continue is considered a gray area of rape, and it is still rape. And so we, uh, we also do sex ed. So we have either Planned Parenthood come in or I myself will do sex ed. We have, um, we have pictures. We have videos. We've got the whole shebang. And the girls really... They're sort of, they're really, um, they're really receptive to it because they've never really had someone come in and answer all the questions that they have, no questions asked, and with no judgment zone. That's really interesting um, that you guys are able to create the space. Do you know, I know you're one of the program directors, but do you know how yes. that kind of program got started? Like how did, how did it come up that this was needed? Um, this, we, well, the probation department or the Juvenile Justice uh, Crime Prevention Act identified um, that girls needed a separate type of service than boys did. Gang intervention uh, is for boys and girls, but girls weren't always as receptive to it, um, and they needed sometimes maybe someone just to talk to or to someone, someone to kind of guide them through steps. Sometimes we have girls that are maybe just really very assertive and don't know how to kind of scale that back a bit. 
and um, even just by kind of changing little things about ourselves or working on things, we can move forward. And it was really, um, I know it was developed um, by, it was identified through the Juvenile Justice Crime Prevention Act that girls needed a separate service than boys did. Hmm. You know what's interesting is, and, and I've been in similar uh, job positions as you, is that, you know, these are these are interesting systems that you work within, right? You're talking about you have yes. to work with the probation department in particular. Yes. And um, but yet and still you found a way to do the work that serves the the, the the community that you want to serve, even within those systems. But yes. how do, how did how, how do you like how do you rationalize that? Because you're a community activist. <laughs> you know, yes. I, I've known you for a very long time. <laughs> How is it that you're able to work within that system and do this type of work and and and, and feel the drive? Because I know you have this drive for helping these youth. We've talked about it. You called me asking for advice, <laughs> so <laughs> sources and reaching out to people to make sure that you're doing the right thing for your youth. Um, and so you have that passion to help, but you're working within the system. How do you how do you mm-hmm. navigate that? I think at some point it really it's just it's just it that's just it it's navigating the system it's um knowing that there is someone and that someone is myself on the inside who is there to help it's you know there's not a lot of people who work in these areas who come from these areas and just knowing that I feel is empowering I think you know I just for my and for myself I feel like I I bring a certain type of passion to the work and so it's not hard for me to go and argue for my youth or to spread their courage or for them to take it, to take it with myself. And so it's, um, you know, I think it's really, it's knowing that there is a way to ha- to, that it can happen, that there, there are funds that are allocated. And I've been, um, I've been lucky enough to be placed in a position where I can help my community and I can help my girls. And the thing is, I also think, like, I wouldn't want anyone else doing it because they would probably fuck it up. Like, they don't know these kids like the way that we know them. You didn't grow up here. You don't know. So, you know, I just feel like even just knowing that, it's empowering to me, and it really it keeps me going, knowing that I shared my kid's story and they can relate to me and I can empathize with them. So basically you're saying that these systems are going to exist, so it's good like a motherfucker like me is in it. That's what it sounds like you're saying. Basically, um, you know, and we've actually had numbers drop, um, and we've had to find different, as far as probation kids, um, not as many kids are on probation, but that's not to say that they're not, and we need to find a service for them. Um, you know, sometimes we, we maybe we're doing too good of a job if the kids are not getting on probation anymore, but we still need to right. identify kids. There are still kids with barriers. You know, the thing is, like, I always tell some, I tell some of my, my uh, the people that I work with that, you know, when, we, when we're here, it's that, you know, I live in South L.A., and y'all go home, and that's it. You go home, and I stay here with them. And you can talk all you want about making it better, but you don't live here. You don't know what it oh, is. You don't identify so, with it in the way that you can. Uh, yeah, they don't, and I they, think that... They don't identify with it the way you can, yeah. No, and so I think, I, you know, it's... Mm-hmm. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, I do commend you for your passion and your work on this, and I also think that it's great that all of you are active. Like, you guys aren't just saying, yeah, I'm a feminist, or yeah, I'm whatever. Like, you're like, hey, I'm doing some shit. I'm working on some shit. I want to see progress. I want to see movement. And that's the kind of thing I like to see. And I think sometimes people get caught up in these discussions, especially 
in the, I'll say the atheist community, people want to have all these semantical discussions about if there's, you know, who's doing what and bash Christians and do all this shit, and not, they're not doing any work. And I'm sure we've seen the same thing in a lot of our people of color, our, our work, you know, within our communities, and you see people who have talked, yeah, white people this, white people yeah. that, but they're not doing anything. But you guys are doing something. So I just want to take all of you to Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, thanks. Thank you. And you know, I was just—I just wanted to mention that um, being in kind of in the nonprofit um, community-based work that we do, it's interesting when we find even competition within one another and within organizations where it seems like um, it's hard for us to stand together even as a community. And I think, and that sometimes it's—it's—it um, gets competitive out here because the youth, um, you know, we're all kind of servicing the same youth in the same community. But I think, you know, I, I, we should be able to work together. We should, we're, you know, we're all in the same boat, and why not row together? So Girl, I think that's um, a whole nother show. I mean, I could go into Oh, it is. It's completely, but, you know, complex. if I'm talking about nonprofit, sure, I might as well just throw it in sure, there. <laughs> I'm sure Tani can have that conversation, too, about the nonprofit <laughs> industrial complex and the... <laughs> <laughs> and you can see within that, but we, yeah, we could have a whole other yeah, show let's, on let's that. Yeah, let's continue. Let's continue this we'll conversation. Continue. I, I would love to continue to connect with all of you. I'm I'm so excited. Yeah, about I'm, ex- I'm excited just to be on this panel with the two of you guys. I'm like, oh, my God, I need to... I need to step my game up. Like, let's just say this shit. I told y'all I had a dope-ass panel. I don't put black people yeah. in there. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to even, you think I will waste my time with some people that are on some bullshit? No. We're going to do a show about feminism and activism. We're going to do some shit about feminism and activism, and we're going to have some feminists of color, activists of color on the shit. So, first of all, Raina, I bet you doubt me. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> no, I never, no, I never doubted you. I mean, first of all, I know you to be dope to begin with. But, I mean, you know, I was just, I knew that you were going to bring awesome folks. I just was, I mean, I, I'm just blown away. Including yourself, including yourself. Because the only reason, oh, the only reason why you. you weren't on the last show is that when I was planning the show, you disappeared on That was the only oh. reason. But I wanted yeah. to do on the last show. So when I when I decided we're going to do another show where women and be inclusive of other communities, I said, you know what, I'm gonna get Raina this time because I see, I see she popped back up on my Facebook. So let me get it. The real shit, Raina is you're dope. So all three of you are dope. Oh, this is good for my self esteem though. <laughs> uh, when I gave the intros, I was trying to I was trying to be succinct because all you guys just are so fucking dope, and I know all of you guys personally. Um, I mean, I've known Tommy since college. I've known Eva since she was a teenager. Now she's grown, doing <laughs> big shit, you know. And I haven't known you in right. long, Raina, but we kicked it. We kicked it. We had a bomb ass time, and you're smart as right. Be going in on people. I mean, I'd be like, damn, right? Shit. <laughs> and you back it up, and you back it up. And that's the thing. You guys, all of you guys, you're backing up your convictions and your beliefs and your passions by doing the work. And you guys have, you know, I see the work that you guys are doing. I see it on my Facebook. You know, Eva calls me and hangs out with me. I haven't seen Tommy in a while, but that's a whole other <laughs> um, we'll, we'll, we'll work on it. You know, you know we're, we're busy. But, you know, I hope that. 
you know, I hope that you bring that you bring um, the the other ladies on the panel with you to the October conference, so we can all meet together. Oh, that would be That'd awesome. Be great. Connie likes to travel That'd be the real world. Life. Connie likes to travel the world. I'm, I look up. I look up on Facebook, and we'd be like, "Yeah, we're gonna put <laughs> this." I'm gonna say, "Yeah, I'm gonna bring Connie to the conference." And then October pops up. She's sitting. She's posting pictures from you know some country. Anywhere, anywhere in the world, you never know. You, you were in Beijing. Where, where, where are you in India? Where were you? Because you were in a few places. Tani, yeah, I mean, I, I was. It, it was worse, but I was, I was shooting, I was DPing a documentary in uh, Dindigul, India, in the south, in Tamil Nadu. Uh, but that was that was last year over the summer. Okay. Well, point is, you you always doing some shit, and you never know where time's gonna pop up. Like I told you, she was on the Quinault Reservation in Washington, and she was in Uganda. She came back to L.A. for a while, and she, I mean, it was just like, oh, my God, this, you can't keep up. But I hope, but I do hope oh, that she comes from, and uh, as far as October, Eva didn't know this, but she was already going to go. Eva's also a uh, participation. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Eva also participates here in, um, in L.A. with our social events for Black Skeptics L.A., so um, okay, cool. So, yeah, she's a part. She's a she's a part of of the movement, and um, and has yes. been. Um, so, so she was gonna go either way. I gotta figure out how to get Tommy there. I might have to pull her off a plane, but we'll figure it out. Um, <laughs> we'll make it but real quick. But real quick, I, I want to wrap up. But I want to go ahead and tell the listeners, the, for the people who are listening to the podcast version of this, um, I want people to know where to find you. So, Raina, where can people find you, and where and where can they look up some of those? stuff for your organization. Um, okay. So we can, um, they can find, well, first they should, you know, check out Black Freethinkers on Facebook and Twitter. That's obvious. And then um, the second thing is, is they can also find people of color beyond faith on Twitter. Every Thursday we do Twitter chat, um, and you can find us at hashtag POC beyond chat. Um, you know, we try to have some pretty engaging, you know, conversations every Thursday. Um, they can find me on Twitter at um, at R A I E L I S E Raelise, um, and that's probably the best place to find me. You can also find me on my um, on my blog um, that I've actually done better with this year. I've actually written like you know a couple of different articles, but um, yeah, it's a Rose to Reality spelled R H O A D E S uh, to Reality at WordPress. Um, yeah, so check me out. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, uh, Raina. Eva, where can people reach you? Um, if you'd like to learn more about our organization and the work we do, um, you can find us at AsianYouthCenter.org, and you can find me on Facebook. I'm Eva Reyes. Um, I've, I don't really know um, a link or anything, but you can probably find me on Vita's page. And on Instagram, I got some Instagame at Eva, that's E-A <laughs> under the C, uh, Eva under the C, one word. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> right. You can always find her on my page, liking some shit, commenting on some shit. I love it. That's awesome. Um, all, of, all three of these ladies have been very supportive to me, and I, I love them all. Um, Tommy, where can people find you can find Immediate Justice on immediatejusticeproductions.org. Um, you can find us under Immediate Justice on Facebook, and we're Immediate Films on Twitter. And Immediate, the media is all in caps in the word media if you type that in. 
Right. So that which is really dope, right? So if you guys look up the word for immediate justice, the word media within the word immediate, immediate is capitalized because it's, hmm. it's a program. Program. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta love this girl. Um. All right, guys. I, I, man, I'm just so happy. I'm very happy with tonight's show, and I'm very happy that I had the three of you on this show representing, you know, various communities. And don't get me wrong, there are still other communities that were not here tonight. I tried. I, did, I tried to get more uh, <laughs> represented. Really, it's a radio show. You can't get everybody represented at one time, <laughs> you know, at six <laughs> on a Thursday. So it's very difficult to make that happen. But there were So don't think that, I, you know, I, I didn't mean to. I left in a box it in like the census. But I did want to be more inclusive of other groups. It's, you know, it didn't happen. Maybe we'll do a, do a part two to this some other time. So, um, again, thank you to my panelists. Uh, thank you to MC Brooks for help holding it down in the chat and on the uh, Twitter discussions. I really appreciate that. Um, Shout-out to Tim for this broadcast. I appreciate giving us this space of black free thinkers uh, to do the work that we do, and I appreciate that very much. Um, I want to give a big shout-out to my guests, my panelists from last show, because they were very informative with a fantastic show. So Jasmine Keat, Emmeline Mousseau, uh, Noah Jones, a.k.a. Tina, Teeny Noah Jones, Ruth Smith, and Emily yeah. Brooks. So shout out to them as well. Um, you can find me on Twitter, Be The Star, B-I-B-A-S-T-A-R-R. You have to put both R's because if you forget one, that ain't me. Um, also on Facebook, <laughs> Be The Star, B-U. You can find me. I, think, I believe my Facebook link is facebook.com slash Be The Star. Um, if it's not it, just type in Be The Star, G-U. Nobody else is named that because I'm dope and unique. Um, <laughs> you can also find me on realityisreal.com and on the Reality Is Real uh, shows, which is um, lawstalkradio.com, R is R, B-O-T-C-O-M. So uh, check me out there. And I hope you guys all have a great evening. Don't forget to check out the next show on blog, uh, Black Free Thinkers, social, they're going to be talking about social justice, community activism, and, oh, I'm sorry, that was actually last night. The next show, before I, because I'm messing up everything, um, that was the last show. The next one about interfaith, social justice, and atheism. Um, that'll be Sunday noon Central Time, 10 Pacific Time, um, and I believe that's 1 Eastern Time. So check that out. Thank you again. And uh, I think to close out the show, I'm going to play – you know what kind of song I played last week, Rhapsody, Celebrate, because we have to celebrate being women, women of color, being beautiful inside and out, being powerful, being, you know, regardless of the circumstances that we're faced with, regardless of how we feel um, or how we think the world is seeing us, because it doesn't, at some, on some level, it doesn't matter, because we're powerful regardless, and I really think we should, you know, promote that. So I, I think I'm going to go out with uh, some Rhapsody. Um, if you guys aren't familiar with Rhapsody, she's one of the dopest MCs out right now. Get the uh, mixtape She Got Game and uh, the idea of beautiful, both are dope projects. Please support uh, women in hip-hop, especially dope-ass women in hip-hop. All right, you guys, um, any final thoughts or anything you want to say before I close this out? So I'm, I'm shutting it down at this very moment. Anything you want okay, to say? Okay, I just want to say, I'm just going to say this because we didn't get to talk about it on the show. Don't ban Bossy, and don't uh, lean in. Don't ban who? Oh, Bossy. Don't ban oh, Bossy, and don't <laughs> lean in. <laughs> I got it. Uh, Tani, anything you and want I, to throw out? Oh, well, well, I just, 
I wanted to thank you for bringing us all together because centering women of color in the movement really liberates the single narrative of feminism. And I think mainstream feminism needs to fight all forms of oppression, not out of philanthropy, but out of the necessity for their own liberation. Um, So, you know, super grateful to be involved. Um, And I guess one message to close is it's time to pass the mic and listen to radical women of color speak our visions and take notes on how to fight for all of us to be free. That's right. Damn, that was a good way to close that shit um, out. Yeah. That, I'm, I can't believe, I mean, you made me, and you made me feel special. I was like, wait, I liberated sexual conversations of feminism. Hey, get it, girl. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was like, damn, honey, woo. All right, Eva. I'm not saying you hard act to follow. So I mean, I can't <laughs> even follow that up, though. I mean. <laughs> Thank you, Tani, for closing this oh, okay. out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, you got one first. As, as many conversations that you and I have had, of, I know you got some shit to say. Is there anything we didn't cover, anything you just want to throw out and make some people know? Um, you know what? There's one thing. Yeah, somehow it's just been kind of um, repeating in my head, but, like, it's just been this kind of, this routine of the, not this routine, but kind of the mantra of the week, but, if you want to empower communities, it's about, um, I already forgot. <laughs> uh, no. It's about access and awareness. If we want to empower communities, it's about access and, access and awareness. And if we don't be, let our young women become aware, then they will never know the access that they have. And so we need to empower them, but not just through our women, through our community, through our people and as a culture. We need to become, we need everything for us to become accessible and aware. We need to become aware of those things. And so I've really becoming, uh, I've really been um, listening to that and just kind of repeating it in my head that for us as a people, we need to become aware and to make it accessible to move forward. All right. See, that was, man, you killed it too. I love you guys. Hey. All, <laughs> All right. I think that's enough for tonight, and I appreciate everyone who stuck with us past the show, and I appreciate everyone who's downloading, and I appreciate I appreciate all of you guys and everyone's support. So right now, we're going to close out with, like I said, Rhapsody, celebrate. Good night. Soiree, you're the masses, toast to a beautiful life, raise your glasses, celebrate the life, looking like it's going to be a wonderful night. Welcome to the party life, for those who seldom part in life. Celebrate the good time. Got my check today on time. And all my close friends celebrating new beginnings here. For those turning another year. For the youngest in the world learning how to steer. I celebrate them all. Celebrate for the fact that we all living, y'all. And for my girls, all rocking new jewelry in this world. Congratulations, celebrate for the parents out here raising Low offspring, celebrate if you're single here without a ring Cause you kicked him to the curb, yeah. he was bad news to my sisters, I say words Celebrate the game, if for only a day you live in pain And celebrate the old days, growing up broke, poor and hungry Cause it made you who you are I celebrate for every, every day like I'm a star Soiree, you're the masses Toast to a beautiful life, raise your glass Celebrate the life Looking like it's gonna be a wonderful night Raise a glass with the masses
masses Celebrate for that full tank of gas and For every test pass That led to a different world and a better class Oh, you bought some new fashions That you just need a reason to show your ass in Celebrate for that Celebrate cause we beautiful and black, y'all And if you got that new job Celebrate cause every day living is hard If your glass full of Palmer Raise it high, y'all, for every single mama And you over all the drama And you just feeling merry, y'all, I promise We gon' have a good time Pop a little bubbly and sip a little wine Reminisce for a bit Celebrate if your house made of bricks Got a roof over your head Food in the place so our bodies all fed We celebrate all night Celebrate with your husband or your wife And if you're feeling alright Toast every day, y'all, and celebrate life Soiree in the mass Toast to a beautiful life Raise your glasses Celebrate the life Looking like it's gonna be a wonderful night. 